now on Christmas, if we set our hearts on doing something for people outside of Australia. And there's a great little group in India that, that work to help families be self-sufficient. And what they do is they build rickshaws, which are the little bicycle things. They're like a taxi. And the little guy gets on the front and pedals and he charges people to take them wherever they want to go. For $700 Australian, that family gets that bike and that rickshaw and that becomes an income for them. 700 bucks. It's not a lot of money, is it, really, to give someone that sort of an opportunity. The same amount, $700 for a sewing machine will give a mother the opportunity to do sewing and to have their own business at home. So for 700 bucks, man. There's a photo that I'll show you next week of all the rickshaws that people have paid for, and it's like a football field full of them. All these families had no income, now they have an income because of families and churches that are supporting it. And for $2,100, that's what can happen. A whole village can get fresh water. That's awesome. So if you'd like to support that, the offering boxes down the back, just put it in an envelope and mark it for that, and we'll make up a sign and we'll have a target and we'll see what God does through us between now and the end of the year. That would be great. The other thing I wanted to share with you was that Glenn, not in his emu suit, but just normally, and Cheryl and I went and met the principal at the officer primary school last week. And she, I've never been in a meeting like it. The principal said, how can you help me? How can your church help us as a school? And we're like, wow, we've never been asked that before. It's normally the other way around. What can we do to get involved in the school? But she was like, can you help us? We've got kids that are dysfunctional. We've got families that aren't functioning very well. We're a school that doesn't have a lot of finances or a lot of you know, manpower and stuff like that. And she basically said, there's an open door here for your church to be involved. So sometime between now and Christmas, we're going to go and bless them in any way we can. I've organised for two of the Christian North Melbourne Football Club players to go there on October the 11th and run a seminar with the kids on leadership. Uh, they're going to have a working bee someday between now and Christmas. We're not going to do church on that Sunday. We're going to turn up in our trailers, in our cars, and just say, here we are to serve you. What an open opportunity. They want a chaplain in there. Yeah. Can you help us get a chaplain? Can you do Kids Hope program? It's just an open door. It's really wonderful to see. So God's good, hey? Really good when those doors open. It's exciting. So this morning I want to share with you about church as an army. A little bit of a, a different topic this morning. We've been looking at church as a family and how relationships are fundamental to really being a representative of who God is. That a church without relationship is dangerous. But a church with relationship as, as its foundation, as its bedrock, is going to be a place that can build intimacy and transparency. It can build a place of trust where people can come and in their brokenness or in their search for God, they can find a place where people are real and genuine and authentic. So family is crucial. Last week we looked at the church as a hospital, a place where spiritual healing can happen. People can come they're dead in Christ, have no knowledge of God, and yet the ministry of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, people come, hear the good news, their lives are transformed, and they can be healed by God. Now, we know the greatest need is spiritual healing, 
but there's also physical and emotional healing as well. When Jesus came and said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and has anointed me, that whole passage is about God's presence touching people in their need. And as we look around in society, there's need everywhere. It's beyond us. We need God to come supernaturally by his spirit and touch lives. And part of the testimony is how God transformed us. And we can validate, we can identify with people and say, I know God's real because. I know because of my messed up life and how the spirit of God, his healing anointing touched me and changed me and brought me to a place where I'm in a much more whole place than I was before. It's so important that we have those testimonies and that we hear of changed lives, of transformation. Because otherwise we, we make Christianity a cerebral thing. We make it all about intellect and knowledge. Now, knowledge is great, but it's not just about knowledge. It's a spiritual thing. When we come here of, of a morning and we begin to sing songs, it's a spiritual transaction between us and God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that's difficult to get started. Sometimes when you look at the worship band and you see them having a great time, there's a disconnect because spiritually something's not happening in your life to enable you to connect vertically with God because it's a spiritual process to come to that point. And today as we look at the church being an army, part of what the enemy doesn't want you to do is enter in. He wants to hold you back. He wants you to sense a separation from God. But part of being an army is learning the tactics and the skills to break those walls down so that we can enter into intimacy with God. There's no curtain that we have to go through anymore. There's no barriers to us having intimacy to the throne room of God. We should be able to stand and feel and sense and know the presence of God. If we can't, then we need to start asking questions, why? Why am I not experiencing God? Because it's not just an intellectual thing. It's a spiritual thing. And if the spirit of the living God dwells within us, then it's illogical not to know that and feel that and sense that. There's got to be a knowledge of God, but there's also got to be an experience of God because the experience validates the knowledge and the knowledge validates the experience. The two go hand in hand. A lot of churches are very strong on the Word of God, okay? really strong on preaching the Word of God, but they lack the spiritual encounter with God. A lot of churches are really great on the spiritual encounter, but they lack the Word of God. It's got to be Word and Spirit dovetailed together, and then we encounter God the way that we need to. So the church as an army is a really important concept in Scripture because we have the sense of the empowering of God upon us for the purposes of pushing the enemy back and advancing the kingdom of God. There's not much point being a soldier who doesn't know how to use a gun or doesn't know how to pull the pin out of a grenade or doesn't know how to fight. The problem with churches is we don't teach people how to fight. We don't know, teach people how to stand in the authority that God has given them and advance the kingdom of God. And what we end up with is people that are fearful and timid 
and don't believe what God has given to them. And that doesn't make you someone in an army. That makes you a coward in God's kingdom, and we don't want that. We want you to be warriors for God. This is what Paul wrote. By reading this, you will understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in previous generations was not made known to men, as it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. So to set the context of the church being an army, God's master plan was to pour out his spirit upon all men and bring us to a place where God could say, Satan, look at my church. Look at my people. Look at their power. Look at their love for me. Look at their righteousness. Look at the way that they love one another. See, that's my wisdom. That's my manifold wisdom. So the church is God's proof. It's his validation to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms that want to mock God and want to tear him down. He says, yeah, but look at my church. Okay, it's a sinful world, but look how they strive for righteousness. It's a world where there's hatred and people climb over one another to get to the top, but look how they esteem one another better than themselves. Look how they look after the broken and the needy. The church is God's bragging book. My mum has a little photo album in her purse and she pulls it out and these are my grandchildren and this is my son. And she's got a brag book and don't get her started because she'll go on for hours. We are God's brag book. The church is, the, is God's way of saying, see, my people will love me. People that are searching for light and truth and righteousness will come to me and they'll follow me. They'll do it with the free will They'll submit to God and we will be the evidence of what the church should be. We're the bragging book. When you think about the Tower of Babel, right? Man did what was right in his own eyes, didn't think about God, was trying to build a tower to the heavens and God said, no, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to scatter you to the utmost parts of the earth, give you different languages. When we get to Pentecost and the Spirit of God is poured out upon men and women, the exact opposite of Babel happened. People spoke in other languages, but it drew people to God, drew people together. And so the Spirit of God being poured out of, on all men was the climax of God's master plan. In ages past, Paul's saying to us, no one knew that people like you and me, Gentiles, would experience the fullness of God. We always thought that was reserved for the Jewish people, the Israelites. But God's manifold wisdom was that we could all share equally in the promises of God and the presence of God. 
the fullness of God's plan was that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would indwell the hearts of men and women, which would give us the capacity to operate as a divine vessel, the presence of God in us. We didn't have to go to a temple and stand outside the outer courts and make a sacrifice and the high priest go in to the presence of God. No, all those things got stripped away so that we could come with boldness to God personally, one-on-one intimacy with God so that we could hear God's voice. He would give us a plan and a purpose for our lives and a vision and we would fulfill that out. And then collectively, if we all do that and we come together, the church is a vibrant place of people pursuing God's will and purpose for their life, living that vision out, living that purpose out. We're doing what God wants for us and everyone's excited and happy because they're experiencing God and moving on and we're passing that on to other people. People from every race, every country, every tribe could share jointly in the riches of God. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job, but I think the book of Job helps us understand the greater context of spiritual warfare. Because Satan went to God and said, God, Job only loves you because he gets it really good. You bless him. He, he's prosperous. I reckon if you took all those things away, Lord, he'd curse you. He wouldn't follow you anymore. And so the book of Job is this story about how God allows Satan to do anything he wants to Job except take his life. And the story is pretty horrific. Most of his family die. He loses all, his, all his, um, his herds and he ends up with boils and sickness. And it's a horrible story. But he never gets to the point, even though his friends say to him, curse God and just die, give up. He doesn't. He stays loyal to God and God says, see, Satan, see, that, that, that's my righteous man. And the same thing with the church. God says, look at my church. Look at them interceding for officer. Look at them with a heart for the lost. They're my people. And so the church is God's way of saying, see, Satan, told you so. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, all those that would oppose God, God says, yes, but victory is in my church, in my people, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, you all know we have an enemy, right, who prowls around like, not as a roaring lion, like a roaring lion, seeking who he might devour. So you're on the lunch menu. He's after you. He's out to get you. Satan comes only to rob, kill and destroy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, rulers and authorities of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Satan has an army with structure and order and he assigns that army to ruin the world. And his main target is the church. Because Satan knows that God wants the church to be his testimony, his witness of his greatness, and if he can destroy the church, then Satan wins. He doesn't win the big scheme thing, but he wins. By destroying churches, by seeing churches divide, by seeing schisms and fractures in churches and seeing pastors in adultery and and anything that he can do to tear the church down because... God's invested his best into the church. That's the, that's the vessel that God has decided is going to be his purpose and plan 
is rooted and grounded in the church. Now, Satan is pretty cunning. He's an accuser. He's a deceiver. Okay, And he works on the principle of trying to masquerade, making himself out to be bigger than he really is, to be more powerful than he really is. That's the way he operates. That's his scheme. He wants us to think that to fight him or to come against him is a dangerous thing to do, that we couldn't win. But that's a lie, and he operates on the basis of lies. He wants us to be timid. He wants us to be frightened. He doesn't want us to advance the kingdom of God. So he does everything in his power to, to make us feel like it's overwhelming. But we have to work on the principle that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Now, the Bible says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Yes, he has power. Yes, he has authority. But in the context of aligning Satan with God, it's a joke. It is really a joke. And what the enemy fears most is believers, ordinary people like you and me, having a revelation of who we are in Christ and realizing the authority and power we have over the enemy. He doesn't want us to believe that because the moment that we believe that, nothing is impossible for us because we understand that the enemy can just be moved to the side. We have authority. We have power to deal with him and his schemes and his tactics. That's why he wants us to think there's no hope and he does everything he can to blind the eyes of the world to the gospel and to the truth of Jesus Christ. We also have a commander. Okay, sometimes I think we get trapped into thinking about Jesus being a sandal-clad, robe-wearing carpenter who was a, a, a rabbi teacher. No. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's a warrior. He's a warrior king dressed in armor of light. Okay? He's the one who does the fighting. And if we look to him and we ask Jesus to fight for us in the battle, it's a done deal. It's done because he's got victory over the enemy. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is what the Lord says, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, because the battle's not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. Okay, let Jesus do the fighting. Now the battleground, this is really interesting because the battleground that the enemy fights in is right between your ears. That's where the battle is fought and won or lost in your mind. Okay, the enemy wants to screw with your mind to the point where you are fearful and timid and afraid and that your opinion of yourself is low and that you think that you can't do anything for God. That's what he wants to do. He wants to rob, steal, and destroy. He's relentless. He won't stop. He has no mercy. He won't stop. But we have to learn that the battle in here can be a victory for us, very simply, by obeying what God's given to us. Because what we think determines who we believe we are and what actions or choices we take 
and make in life. If there's one thing that I would love to do as a pastor is to open people's heads up and get them to understand who they are in Christ. Because when that revelation comes, when you see someone suddenly discover the light goes on, hang on a minute, I don't have to put up with this anymore. I've got a right and a privilege and authority and power to fight what happens in my head. Okay? This is what happens. Someone comes up here and shares communion on a Sunday morning and they go home and they think, nobody said anything to me this morning. No one encouraged me. I wonder if I said the wrong thing. Oh, I'm not doing communion again. No, I stuffed that up. And the enemy plants a seed. And what happens? You start to think about it. He gets you to feed on it. And then you start to think, no, I'm inferior. What I said wasn't God's truth. And so the mind is starting to play tricks. Okay? The Bible tells us we need to take that thought captive. Don't let it run. And that's the same principle with everything that happens in our mind. So we're walking down the street. We see a lady that's scantily dressed and her mind goes, lust. Okay? What do you do? If you let that thought run, it will start to fantasize. It will start to get deeper. It will take seat in your mind. It will get a foothold and you will let it run. It will play out and pretty soon that woman's been undressed and that goes on. It's the same principle for everything. You get an opportunity to pick $50 up because someone left it up the back. The thought's planted. No, that's not mine. I won't take it. I'll, you know, or, oh, no one's looking. I can get that. It's in the mind where we've got to win the victory. It's where we've got to be strong and not allow unhealthy patterns, unhealthy things to, to happen in our life. And, the, and prayer and the word of God is what we need to use to fight. You see, the whole premise of spiritual warfare is not about you and me fighting. Sometimes I think people get that wrong and they think they can go and attack the enemy and assault him. I think that's really dangerous. I think the scriptural principle is to drag your enemy to the king. Drag him to the feet of the king. If you read the book of Esther, the whole thing about the book of Esther is Esther wanted an audience with her king so she could explain what was happening to her people. And she brought her enemy to the king and exposed him. And that's the principle for us, to bring the situation, the stronghold, the, whatever it is that we're fighting against, wrestling with, we bring it to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're the captain of the host of heaven. Fight it for us. We just drag the enemy to him, whatever it is. If we've got someone that we're ministering to, all we're really doing is bringing that person to Jesus, allowing the Holy Spirit to do what he needs to do to heal them and bring them to a place of healing. I love this verse in Jude, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That's the biblical principle. If the archangel Michael was not going to have a go at the devil, then I'm not going to try either. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And that's the principle. We need to let Jesus do the fighting. Okay. The problem with spiritual warfare or being the army of God is that sometimes we give Satan much more credence than we really ought to. My principle is I don't even worry about him until he gets in the way and then we move him aside. Our focus should be on Jesus 
Our focus should be on preaching the gospel, about sharing the good things of God. We don't have to look for demons behind every bush because what will happen if we meddle that way, the enemy will deceive us. He'll trick us, you know, through prayer and the word of God. We need to know our weapons and use them. And here we're getting to the crux of it. The strategy is to push the enemy back. Okay, when Jesus set the apostles apart and said, go out, he said to them, heal the sick, feed the poor, drive out demons, and then preach the gospel. So he said to them, go out and meet their felt need. But then when you've met their felt need, then minister to their spiritual need. And the Salvation Army used to do that brilliantly. Booth was a guy who said, how can I preach the gospel to these people when they're starving? I'll meet their felt need, their human need, and then out of that context, I'll preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Salvation Army had incredible, incredible growth in salvation. Nowadays, the Salvation Army do that the other way around. In a sad way, all they do is minister to the felt need and they don't preach the gospel anymore. Not the way they used to. We need to go with the sharp end of the sword into the battle. It's to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And we need to do that by sharing God's word, but also through signs and wonders. Because it validates that this God that we claim is supernatural and all-powerful is actually who he says he is. And if you read through Acts when um, the Christianity began to spread through Asia Minor, the apostles often went to a, to a place where they said, something's not right here. Has the, has the gospel come to you? And they said, yes, it has. Well, why aren't there signs and wonders? And so they prayed for people for the Holy Spirit to come. And in that encounter with God, then the miraculous came. And we need both. We need to preach the gospel, an uncompromising truth of God's word, but we also need to allow for the miraculous to flow as well. Now, the danger is the miraculous can become an end in itself, and that's all we want. It's only a means to an end. It's to demonstrate the power and the authority of God. So all these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Luke 10:19. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm me. Psalm 144, 1 and 2. Praise be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He's my loving God and fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge. When you go into the battle, all you do is push Jesus out in front. So go fight for me, Lord. <laughs> that's, the, that's the biblical principle. Okay, now we get to the real pointy end of the message. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
That power is the same as the mighty strength that exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's two words that scripture uses for authority and and power. The first is exousia, which is the authority that Jesus had when he came up out of the grave and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. All authority, all exousia, all right or privilege or power is mine and I give it to you. Use it. Exercise it. You have authority. Let's go back. I have given you authority. How much authority? All authority. All authority is ours. We just need to believe that it is. So we have a right, a privilege, a capacity, a jurisdiction to exercise power, to exercise authority. And the word for power is dunamis. Okay? It's a great word, isn't it? Dynamite, that's the word. You know, we are a force to be reckoned with. The enemy doesn't want you to think that. But you are a force to be reckoned with. Miraculous power, might, strength, wonders. What we need is a greater revelation that that power and authority is ours. Because when we own it and exercise it and walk in it and stand in it, the enemy is not the issue anymore. We just move out in faith and power, and we use God's word, and we use prayer, and we push the enemy back, pushing back, pushing back, way back, pushing back, pushing back, way back. That's the principle. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? And we use scriptural principles to push the enemy back. We use his word. We stand on the truth. We don't give him a foothold because a foothold becomes a stronghold. So we take every thought captive. Okay, the scripture says to us that the weapons that we fight with are not carnal. They're not worldly things. So the way we fight war is not Shane walking into his workplace and saying, guys, you need to be saved, right? If you don't get saved, I'm going to punch you in the nose, right? We don't fight human ways. We fight with spiritual weapons that are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and every pretension that sets itself up against God. So what we do is say, I know there's a stronghold here but I know that I have greater power and authority in God to tear that down. It starts in our mind, and the same principle applies in spiritual warfare when we minister. All we're doing is tearing down what the enemy's built up, smashing it down with the word of God, smashing it down with the truth. So when the lies start to flow in my head and I start to get worried about the things that I do, I've got to use the word of God. Do not be discouraged, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you grow. And I start to use the word of God to say to the enemy, what you're telling me is a lie. I won't believe the lie, I'll substitute it for the truth. And I use the word of God, that my God has plans to prosper me, plans for a future and a hope. And when the seeds of doubt and unbelief and fear come, I take them captive. I say, I'm going to stand on that thought. And I'm going to substitute it with the truth of God's word. 
And when I can develop that discipline in my head, it doesn't matter what the enemy throws at me. Mark, you're useless. No, I'm not, because my God said about me, about me this. And he has to go. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will. That's the principle. Not just resist the enemy. Submit to God first. Resist the enemy and he'll flee. He's got to go. Can't stand it. I love this story because I think it encapsulates what we're talking about today. It's the story of Gideon. Now, I can really identify with Gideon. I mean, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And he went, are you talking to me? <laughs> I think you've got the wrong person here. Because he didn't really understand who he was in God. But he kept battling on and he rose up in the strength that he had and he tore down the Asherah poles and the idols that had been set up in Israel and he became a great leader. But in his mind, he said, I'm the weakest in my tribe. I'm a nobody and I can't do anything for you, God. And God said, hang on a minute, mate. That's not who I made you to be. Just go in the strength that you have. I will be with you and strike the enemy down. So when we do spiritual warfare, it's not about us. It's about the one we take with us into the battle. Jesus fights for us in the heavenly realms and we let him do the fighting and we invite him into the battle and he takes the victory. We just hang on to the hem of his garment as he fights for us. Now, I think when I look at Gideon, and my experience as a pastor is that most people have that doubt and that fear in their mind. That if someone was here today and came up for prayer and I went and said, Jeremy, would you come and pray for this person? You'd say, I'm inadequate. Or you'd say, I haven't had the experience. Or I'm not ready yet. That's what the enemy does. He wants you to think that you're not capable of fighting at the front row of the battle. But you are. You are, and it's a lie to believe anything else. It's offensive to God to say that you're not able. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The power of God's word. We so often respond like Gideon in weakness. We make excuses and we shrink back. No, we've got to stand strong in the spirit. You've got to stand strong with the word of God. We've got to stand on the front row of the battle. We are the resistance movement. Jesus said, occupy until I come. Take the land. Take officer. Pray over it because you have authority to claim it. You have authority to bring people to a place where God will meet them. So that's what we were doing this morning. We are praying for our loved ones and people and we think, oh, well... What's the, what's the point of mouthing these words? It's just a wasted exercise. <laughs> because we have authority. We have a right and a privilege and we have power to speak into the heavenly realms, to push the enemy back, to take away the scales from that have blinded people and allow God's truth to come. And if we rise up and fight like an army, we're going to see more and more victory. If we just shrink back, we'll just see the church be this wimpy, weak little thing that meets on a Sunday morning. No, we're an army advancing together, united in faith. That beautiful picture of the Roman army with all their shields and an incredible capacity just to lock together, to move forward with their shields, poke the spear out, 
You know, that's what we've got to do. We've got to stick together, fight the fight together, shielded, armed with the authority of God and walk into the battle. I love that picture. It's what real fighting should be like. Don't worry about the machine guns and the use God's blessing. Use the privilege that he's given us. Now, today I said I was going to do something a little bit different, if you remember last week, right? I said I was going to get you out of your comfort zone. Today I want to do two things. I want to break up into two groups. I want the ladies to stay in here with me, and I want the men to go into the gym with Cheryl. And I want to do two things. This morning, if I've been speaking and you know that the enemy's had ground in your life, like thought patterns that are unhealthy, or thought patterns where you think you're less than who you really are in God, I want you to take ownership of that this morning. The only thing you need to do is to be willing to say, would you pray for me? That's all you need to do. And people will gather around and they will pray. Okay, Because that's the only way we can help you, is through prayer and the word of God. Okay, So I'd like to do that this morning. But then I'd also like us to really stand together and pray for Catalyst Church. Okay? I don't want to do church like every other church is doing it. If that's the way we're going to do it, then let's pack up and go home because I want it to be a place where we're a family, where we are a hospital and we are an army. And we need to also be a bride. We'll get to that one later. But we need to be warriors for God. And it's not just about having a leadership team who are trained and elite and we look to them to do all things for us. No. No, there is a flat line here. There's no separation between clergy and laity or I don't care if you're a plumber or a butcher or whether you've got a theological degree. We are all equal in God and we all stand together. So men, today when Cheryl leads you, she's going to ask you to rise up and be the men of God over your families that you are destined to be to stand strong over your families. And ladies, I know that you are very often the real warriors for God. Sometimes us men, we're so busy with work and, and we let things go, but we really need to have a change. And so this morning I want to encourage you, if you know that there's that place in your mind where the enemy's had you, let's step out from under that today and let people pray. And then let's gather and let's pray for this church. So ladies, stay here with me. Gents, off you go with shears. 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 Gents, off you go with shears.